If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm C. Pride. And I'm Abby Dees. Today was the first day of spring, and you know what that means. Yes, we can finally stop calling Mar-a-Lago the Winter White House. Oh, thank God. Today's vernal equinox means longer and brighter days are on the way. But you know, it's always winter north of the wall, which... Hopefully we won't be ever. No, north of the wall. Yeah. Tonight's show, Miss Barbecue is sitting down with drag superstar Pandora Box. To celebrate Women's History Month, we'll encore Steve Pride's conversation with an author, activist, and feminist who made a lot of that history, Carla J. And we'll be joined in studio by singer-songwriter Joseph Ede. But first, the national and international news from This Way Out. <laughs> I'm Michael LeBeau. And I'm Frances O'Brien. With NewsWrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending March 18, 2017. Japan's Tomoyo Hosoda this week became the first trans man in the world to be elected to public office. The 25-year-old won one of 22 open seats on the Iruma City Council in the country's southern region of Kanto. Hosoda came out as trans while he was a medical student at Taikyo University. He began transitioning in 2015. Until recently, people have acted as if sexual and gender minorities do not exist, he said. We have many hurdles to overcome, but I hope to live up to everyone's expectations. The more we meet people, the narrow-minded way of thinking will expand. Japan elected its first trans woman in 2003, Kimikawa Aya. In other news, a divided three-judge panel of the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 does not outlaw workplace discrimination based on sexual orientation. The Atlanta-based court dismissed the appeal of Jamika Evans, a lesbian who dressed as male when working as a security guard at Georgia Regional Hospital in Savannah before she was pressured to quit. She sued the hospital in 2005, charging that she had been denied equal pay or work, harassed, and physically assaulted or battered. The lawsuit also claimed that she was dismissed based on gender stereotyping. But the 2-to-1 11th Circuit vote upheld a lower court's rejection of Evans' claims, writing that she did not provide enough factual matter to plausibly suggest that her decision to present herself in a masculine manner led to the alleged adverse employment actions. 
and the court ruled that Title VII's protections against discrimination based on sex do not cover sexual orientation, whether homosexual or heterosexual. The Obama administration and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission successfully argued in several lower courts that federal civil rights laws protecting women also protect LGBT people. But no U.S. appeals court to date has agreed with that analysis. Meanwhile, the Center for Family and Human Rights, known by the shorthand CFAM, was named this week by the U.S. State Department to join its delegation to the U.N.'s 61st Annual Commission on the Status of Women, the annual high-level gathering in New York focusing on women's equality and empowerment. But LGBT and other human rights groups are condemning the inclusion of that group in the delegation. The well-respected Southern Poverty Law Center lists CFAM as an anti-queer hate group. Longtime CFAM leader Austin Ruse has pushed for the recriminalization of homosexual acts because they're harmful to public health and morals, and vocally supported Russia's law banning so-called gay propaganda. Outright Action International's Jessica Stern noted that CFAM regularly releases homophobic vitriol on its website. U.S. queer rights advocates are also expressing specific concerns about Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch. BuzzFeed News reported that 19 major equality organizations signed a letter to leaders of the Senate Judiciary Committee this week, charging that his views on civil rights issues are fundamentally at odds with the notion that LGBT people are entitled to equality, liberty, justice, and dignity under the law. Gorsuch's rulings have included the rejection of a trans woman student's bathroom use lawsuit, citing discomfort-based complaints by other students. He also sided with Hobby Lobby in a landmark case upholding the rights of employers to deny reproductive health care benefits that conflict with the employer's religious views. The Senate Judiciary Committee is set to begin confirmation hearings for Gorsuch in the coming week. In better news, especially for queer people of color, the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank now has its first African-American and first openly gay executive. 50-year-old Raphael Bostic, whom one colleague described as a seasoned and versatile leader, bringing with him a wealth of experience in public policy and academia, was named this week as the new president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, one of the country's 12 regional banks. The Atlanta-based 6th Federal Reserve District covers Georgia, Alabama, Florida, and parts of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Tennessee. And finally, everything you've heard about the new Disney live-action version of Beauty and the Beast may be true. Or not. Critics in Russia, Singapore, Malaysia, and Alabama claim that LeFou, the sidekick of the film's villainous Gaston, is gay. LeFou, who's played by Josh Gad, appears to dance with another man during a raucous bar scene in the movie. Its openly gay director, Bill Condon, told reporters that LeFou has confused feelings about his boss, describing him as somebody who on one day wants to be Gaston and on another day wants to kiss Gaston. Russian censors slapped an adults-only rating on the film. Malaysian censors threatened to cut the so-called gay scene. The Bishop of Singapore's St. Andrew's Catholic Church issued an alert to warn his congregation about the film's homosexual content. And the owner of a drive-in theater in Alabama has cited her religious beliefs in deciding not to screen the film. If I can't sit through a movie with God or Jesus sitting by me, she wrote on the drive-in's Facebook page, then we have no business showing it. 
Ewan McGregor, who voices Lumiere, the candlestick in the film, seems exasperated by all the controversy in this clip from CBS's The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. There are rumors that there was LeFou had gay yearnings for Gaston or something. It turns out he dances with a guy in a dress in one of the scenes, right? That's the whole thing. Well, no, I think he's a gay character. He is? Yeah. It's 2017, for <laughs> sake, you know. That's News Wrap for the week ending March 18th, 2017. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Frances O'Brien. And I'm Michael LeBeau. Remember, you can hear all 30 commercial-free minutes of This Way Out on the podcast at thiswayout.org and on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Today, we're just in the middle of Women's History Month, and one of my heroes of both the LGBT and the women's movement is Carla J. I've known her for about 20 years, and when I was in New York a couple years ago, she dropped by the apartment for this chat. Carla J. was already a member of the feminist action group Red Stockings, as well as the early lesbian organization Daughters of Belitis, when in 1969, in the wake of the Stonewall Riots, she joined the chess-forming Gay Liberation Front, GLF. We're meeting in Midtown New York City for a chat about the future and the past. I'm Carla J. I'm the author, editor, and translator of 10 books, the most recent of which is Tales of the Lavender Menace, a Memoir of Liberation. I also edited 24 books for NYU Press for a series called The Cutting Edge, Lesbian Life and Literature. I just retired from Pace University after 39 years of teaching English, women's studies, and queer studies. How did you become an activist? I really became caught up in historical events. For one thing, I, I went to... Barnard, which was part of Columbia, and I just happened to be there during the Columbia uprisings. And it was the total injustice of the New York City Tactical Police Force, which rounded up the innocent and the guilty alike, which thrust me into the movement. There's nothing like being out there on the campus and being chased around by police to see friends arrested and beaten up for doing nothing mostly, and also to be treated badly by the men who thought that women's place in the movement was to sleep with them and to provide peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, that was a great way to make a feminist out of anyone. So a lot of us came out of this uprising as feminists, as pacifists. And also another important thing that happened to me when I was in college was that Malcolm X came to Barnard to speak in February. I think it was in 1964. And two days later, he was dead. And I met him two days before his assassination. And it was just such a colossal event, you know, to meet someone who was then assassinated and who was really, at that moment in his life, reaching out to, you know, white college kids like me. It was really quite phenomenal for me. And I really was very interested in the civil rights movement as well. Then I heard about the women's movement and that feminists were forming groups, you know, Red Stockings, New York Radical Feminists. And I went to an event where different feminist groups were recruiting, and I decided to go with a radical group called Red Stockings, which had developed something called consciousness raising. 
which they had borrowed from the mainland Chinese, as we called them back then. And in China, it was called speaking bitterness. So I joined Consciousness Raising, and there were a lot of very interesting people in that group, including Rita Mae Brown, Alex Kate Shulman, both of whom are well-known writers. And we analyzed things that we had never discussed before as women, things about how we were raised differently as men and women. We just never had spoken of that, being raised as boys and girls and relationships and our education and how that might have been different because of our gender. Today, of course, people speak of these things, but people really had never spoken of these things. And we wrote position papers, and we also did a lot of work around abortion, which was illegal. However, the feminist movement was homophobic. It was also somewhat classist. They were middle-class white ladies. They weren't particularly interested in the civil rights movement. And they certainly weren't interested in lesbians. Although Red Stockings created the saying, the personal is political, when it came to lesbians, they thought the personal was personal and they didn't want to hear about it. So when Stonewall happened and the Gay Liberation Front formed shortly thereafter, I didn't walk over there, I ran over there to join the Gay Liberation Front. And that's how I became not just a, a radical feminist, I became a radical gay activist. You know, in the 1960s, it seemed possible that anyone could change the world. How do you explain that era to millennials? I don't think that young people today can understand what our lives were like in the 1960s. When I was at Barnard, a lesbian could be thrown out for being a lesbian. Women's colleges in particular were homophobic because they didn't want to be known as hotbeds of lesbians. You could be arrested if there were a raid on a bar. Even if you were not arrested in the bar raid because you had the right ID and you were of legal age, which was of 18 at the time in New York, and you were wearing the proper clothing, if they got any information off you, if they got your name, if they got your address and they found out your employer or your school or where you lived, you would lose your apartment, you would lose your job, your family would kick you out. You could simply lose everything, your marriage, your children, anything you had, you would lose. We had no rights at all. We couldn't find each other because words like homosexual or gay or lesbian, which came along with the Gay Liberation Front, could not be printed in any newspaper or in the yellow pages, which preceded the internet. And so we couldn't find each other. It was really this time of loneliness and isolation. And many people were ashamed of each other or of themselves. It was not kind of a happy time for most gay men and lesbians to be who we were. So it's hard to understand that today. When we first met the Gay Liberation Front, there were some people, interestingly enough, who expressed the desire when we said, what do we want? Some people actually said they wanted to get married. But more people said, I would really just like to be able to hold my lover's hand and not be beaten up. <laughs> you know, That seemed like a far more realistic goal. I never thought that we'd have the right to get married in my lifetime. I'm thrilled that we do. It really wasn't a primary goal. Like John Waters, you know, I thought that not having to go in the military was one of the perks of being gay and maybe not having to get married, which was his other comment. But I'm thrilled that people can get married. It's a complicated issue. It certainly wasn't my own first priority. We wanted to live in peace at a time when people were being persecuted. And we also have to remember that there were people in our movement who were killed 
for being out there and working for the movement. This is Steve Pride, and I'm talking to pioneering LGBT activist Carla J. Besides your work in New York, you were involved in the very first Pride Parade in Los Angeles. The GLF, we organized the parade in 1970, and I was actually in the first poster that organized the picnic the day before, the Saturday before the parade, and we advertised that we had a picnic at Griffith Park. So we had a big picnic, and then we had a parade going down what was the Hollywood Boulevard or something. It wasn't a long parade. The difference between the parade in Los Angeles and the parade in New York, we called them a march back then because we thought of them as being political rather than being, you know, the Thanksgiving Day parade. We had banners, you know, mostly homemade with markers and things like that, was that in Los Angeles there were some floats, even in the first march, and they had this float with a tube of Vaseline on it, which I could not believe that they had something like that. It was very in your face. And that was like KY of 1969, 1970. This was in June of 1970. And we had this march and we were kind of afraid there would be violence. My strategy was always to stay smack in the middle of the crowd, because if you were like at the edge close to the people who were the onlookers, you were much more likely to be hit by a bottle or somebody could throw beer at you or something like that. And we did walk and it went really well and there was a very thin crowd, maybe one deep, you know, of people who were out there mostly cheering us on. We were booed by some people. And around that event, there was also a sit-in at the federal building where we camped for several days asking for rights, and uh, there was fasting going on, and we sat out there for several days and nights at the federal building, and Troy Perry was the spokesperson for that event, although he went home for showers. The rest of us stayed there while he got to shower. We were going to fast until there were rights for lesbians and gay men, but obviously we, we gave in. <laughs> As a movement, what's our biggest challenge? One of the problems of the gay movement back in 1969, and maybe today, is that we have very tenuous bonds. What is it that holds us together? We like people of the same sex. This is LG, some B people, and not all people who are I or T. And what holds us all together is that we are oppressed by some people in society at large as queer. And that's a very tenuous bond. We don't come from the same class. We don't come from the same race. We don't come from the same religious background. We don't have the same educational background. And so what held people in, for example, the black civil rights movement together does not hold us together. And this is one reason why the black movement could have a leader like Martin Luther King Jr., and we never had a Martin Luther Queen to lead us. When anyone has risen to the top of our movement, we have torn that person down because there is never going to be a person that represents us. And this was the problem from the very beginning. We were in there, you know, black, white, Latinos, street transvestites, people who had sex in the back of trucks, lesbians who came in off the streets, college-educated, radical feminists like myself, gay men who had been on the Vence Ramos brigades, men who came in from Mattachine. We had nothing in common. 
accept the fact that we were really angry about what had happened at Stonewall. We wanted to do something. And we couldn't agree on much more. And we tried to hold it together. We did. We did a lot. You know, we had a lot of actions. We created dances. We picketed the New York Times. We had other political actions as well. But the other side of it is, you know, when people say, well, why didn't these groups last? We never intended it to last. We weren't setting up a corporation that was supposed to last in perpetuity. We had no political structure. We didn't even have leaders like a president and vice president. We had a chair for a month whose name was picked out of a hat. That's how I became the head for one month. My name was simply picked out of a hat. We were an anarchistic sort of organization. But those same sorts of issues exist today. People need more to act on a microfront. And that's why when groups represent us nationally and they lobby for something nationally to represent us all, no one is ever going to agree with what it is they want to do. And instead of taking activism into our own hands, we've pulled out our credit cards and we've turned over our own lives to large organizations like, for example, the Human Rights Campaign. We have become lobbyists. And it's not that we shouldn't do that. There is some irony, however, in the fact that Edie Windsor, a single plaintiff, overturned all of these laws when I'm 100% certain that probably large organizations like Lambda Legal Defense, that they were putting together these coalitions of plaintiffs that would represent different categories, let's say, of people who were discriminated against, like veterans and people who couldn't get other kinds of benefits because their marriages weren't recognized by the federal government, for example, social security benefits and so on. But that's what many people do. People would rather partake of social events and write out a financial reward for someone to take care of us. Now, for certain things that make sense, we can't do cancer research, we can't do HIV research, so of course give money to somebody who can do this research for you. There are things that we cannot do. However, in our local communities, there are things we can do. Just to give you one, for instance, I see a lot of activists like myself who, unlike me, didn't have this moment of enlightenment where I said to myself, aha, we never got a dime for what we did. And I said to myself, I got to get a job, you know. I never got any money for activism. I'm not complaining. I did okay. But I see a lot of people I knew from the women's movement, from the LGBTQ movement, who are really badly off, people without whom we wouldn't have marriage, we wouldn't have anything. And if you're out there and you're young, you know, and you can't go over to help an LGBTQ senior for an hour a week, help them shop, help them whatever, do something, then there's really a problem. Say thank you to these people because their being out helped us be out, the people who are older than I am who are 80, help me be out. Carla, any final thoughts you want to share? What I learned from Gandhi was until you find something you're willing to die for, you don't have something you're willing to live for. And because I inadvertently faced death literally a couple of times, and because I faced the wrath of friends and foes and faced poverty and lived in poverty, there's nothing that frightens me. The fact that I have lost my eyesight, you're going to have to run me over with a Mack truck to stop me. You know, because I've been so lucky to be in this movement, to have had this life, to have seen these changes, to have met all the people I've met, 
to have gone the places I've gone, to have seen the changes I've seen. And, you know, I just feel incredibly lucky. And I think that's an amazing thing. This has been a conversation with legendary lesbian and feminist activist Carla J. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Great, great interview with Carla J. Steve. It really makes me think, especially with social media and everything, her point, there's no substitute for human connection and dignity. You can't outsource it. That, great, write the checks, send the tweets and everything, but ultimately, if you really want to make a difference, you have to get out of your house and go help or fight. Absolutely. Still to come, Miss Barbecue's conversation with RuPaul Drag Race alum, Miss Pandora Box. And we'll be joined in studio by singer-songwriter Joseph Ede. We'll be right back. Edith Sitwell rocks the boat, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Edith Sitwell was born into British aristocracy in 1887, with Helen Rudum engaged as her governess. She guided Sitwell into the realm of poetry and was her companion for 35 years. Sitwell published her first volume of poetry in 1913. Also a performance artist, Sitwell's avant-garde style initially offended her Victorian-era audience. In her presentation titled Facade, she recited poetry with a megaphone from behind a theater curtain accompanied by a symphony. Propelled to the forefront of modernism, Sitwell hobnobbed with lesbian writers like Virginia Woolf and Gertrude Stein. A prolific poet and novelist, Sitwell also surrounded herself with gay men. In 1962, she published her last poem titled The Outcasts which in its unique fashion called for the reform of British anti-homosexuality laws. Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios of WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hello, I'm Pandora Box and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine on KPFK-FM, 90.7 Los Angeles. 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, or streaming online at kpfk.org. I grew so many little hearts for you, but they died unattended. Well, I've been watching you real close lately, been working out at your gym. And I've been talking to all your friends who tell me that you broke up with him. I think you're ready now, I think you're ready now, I think ready to love me I think you're ready now I think you're ready now I think you're ready to love me The secret laws of attraction, baby I made a school out of them I built my vision boards as high as heaven I stuck you all over them And my obsession never Really died. It just grew silently stronger. And I will rest until I make you mine. It ain't gonna take much longer. I think you're ready now.
Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Steve Pride. And that song coming out of break was called Ready Now, and it's from an exciting L.A. singer-songwriter that we happen to have standing right here in the studio, and he's actually going to play live for us. His name is Joseph Ede. He's got a single called Watch It Fall that's just been released, and is in about a month is going to have an EP. Welcome, Joseph Ede. That's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I um, saw you last month. You performed at the Gallica Awards, and you just blew everyone away. I did. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to meet you there and really happy to be here with you, you guys. You've been getting a lot of attention for being a great live performer, for being a very heart-filled you know, filled singer-songwriter doing like what we just heard. What do you think people are responding to in your music? I think, um, I think that I write very personal songs, and uh, I'm not afraid of that. It's funny, I had a friend recently, like with my new EP coming out, he's like, oh, wow, those are really personal songs. And I'm like, yeah, you know, that's how you reach people. Because yeah. when you write something really personal to you, uh, people connect with that. And I think that's uh, that's my thing is I've never really held back. I just kind of write what's happening and put it out there. You've been described as Americana or folk rock. I always yeah. laugh a little bit about the concept of Americana because to me it's just it's everything. Seven, it's everything. <laughs> it's 70s rock and roll with like, you know, suspenders and a beard. Um, <laughs> How do so without labeling people? How do you like to label yourself? Because people I, like labels. I like I like the label folk pop. Yeah. Because that's that's what what I grew up listening to, and those are my influences. Is both those genres. So you hear that in my music. It's a little bit of folk. It's a little bit of pop. And uh, I think Americana is just used to describe a lot of American, you know, roots music. That's that comes from country and blues, which essentially is what everything comes from. That's yeah, absolutely. American, yeah. Um, you've got some music ready for us. What are you going to play? I do want to play the new single that I uh, just released, and uh, this is a song called Watch It Fall, and it's the title track from the upcoming EP. Great. And, um, Let it rip. Yeah, thanks. dirt on everyone he's got secrets to tell and the guy who lives by the front door stands out there all alone and he's got weakness to sell and there's the actress downstairs with a dog who's dying and he cries and he cries when she goes out and there's a tattooed healer who's more like a dealer of things you don't want to know about Now watch it all fall, fall, fall down From the roof to the walls to the ground, ground, ground Watch a dream sink, sink, sink low, low, low They keep on telling me by the stairs been living there for 40 years she's got stories of fright yeah she tells tales of ghosts in the halls from tenants who lived here before and the way that they die and then she touches my face and says I remember the man in your place and that's when I slowly start to back out and I say lady Thank you for the history, but I really gotta go. You see, there's some things I don't wanna know about. And I 
I watched it all fall, fall, fall down From the roof to the walls to the ground, ground, ground Watch a dream sink, sink, sink low, low, low They keep on telling me Go, go But one day when I'm famous I'll finally move out of here And I first said six months But it's been six years And I'm still here yeah, I'm still here The composer on the first floor He's longing for something more There's a pain in his eyes And when he walks by with his girl Hand in hand He sneaks a look my way And I understand, see There's a lie that he's hiding And there's my friend Obsessed for me With his theories of conspiracy and I always seem to run into him when I've been drinking And he says just smoke this joint, my friend And don't bother making any plans Cause the ship is sinking Now watch it all fall, fall, fall down From the roof to the walls to the ground To the ground I watch a dream sink, sink Oh, oh, oh. they keep on telling me I could like replicate like a whole crowd clapping. It's just Steve and me in here, but that was fantastic. Thank you. What is that song? Watch it. That's your new single. Watch it yes, fall. Yes. How did that come into being? Well, uh, I wrote it uh, a couple of years ago, and you know I've been living in this. I love my apartment building, mm -hmm. so I just want to get that clear. Even though the song is a little. You're bit, the guy on the first floor. Uh, no, I'm just the guy watching everybody. All right. Yeah, um, and observing, and and I wrote it at a time where where I felt really stuck. You know, in in life and my career, my dreams, everything just seemed like, oh man, is anything ever gonna happen? You know, and and then I just um, I just came up with this concept of just describing people in a building, and uh, and relating it to a dream and life and how you can just be in a place where you could just see everything around you falling and just losing faith and losing hope, and um, you know, the building basically represents uh, you know, a station in life and feeling like you you can't get out. It's like you know. That Hotel California thing. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's inspired by um, a lot of interesting people and things. Where do you want your music to go? Every every musician and artist yeah. has that sense of there's something that they want to get to. Do you have that sense, too? I just, honestly, to not sound so simple with it, but I just wanted to get to the people who, who really need to hear it. I feel like, you know, I've had I've had people tell me, like, you know, your album has really come to me at a time where I was having a really hard time and it made me feel really connected and gave me hope and, and this and that. And I just, I think that um, people have a way of finding music. And these days it's, it's just great how we can kind of release our own music. But my dream is to, is to just get some major distribution and get my music out in the world in a really big way. 
so that um, so that everybody could hear it and the people that connect with it do. We'll go over this at the end of the segment, but uh, if for people that want to go pick up this song, where do they get it? Um, the, the song uh, Watch It Fall as well as um, another single are out now on iTunes, Spotify, any music distributor, Amazon. Um, so, yeah, it's out there along with, with all my music. Um, what else do you have for us? So I'm going to sing for you guys uh, a song off my first album, Human. And uh, this is a song called Something Real that I think a lot of people can relate to. It's kind of about uh, dating in this modern age and um, communication or the lack thereof. And it's called Something Real. Let's just make sure we're in tune here. There we go. That's the fun thing about live music is <laughs> yeah. there's always that, that tuning solo. <laughs> exactly. All right, here we go. You say I don't communicate But I only like to speak from my soul You say things with your words But you never say them with your eyes And I guess that's how this story You're like a robot, one, two, three You read books on how you should feel You got a gifted mind, but it ain't connected to your heart And I wonder sometimes if you're real But maybe it's your generation and your text is conversation And you love me so, so good When you're on Facebook And I only say it if I mean it And I get close so you feel it And my words may be far between But baby, I'm for real and Nothing good in life free So you got to work to know me I like to take my sweet time I don't spill it all out like cheap wine You got to earn this love degree And yeah you do And baby it's like alienation When your texts are conversations and you love me so, so much With your right touch And I only say it if I mean it And I get close so you feel it And my words may be far between But baby, I'm for real Yeah, I'm for real And I don't have a problem with emotion I just don't like to rub it all over like lotion you say I don't communicate But I think there's a time and there's a place You sent me a real cute YouTube And you put it all up on Twitter too But baby this bird needs some face To face Yeah, 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 yeah And maybe it's our generation and our texts are conversations And you love me so, 
hold so strong on your right phone and I only say it if I mean it and I get close so you feel it and my words may be far between but baby I oh I I know that we're digital but darling we're still human after all and I like to use a phone sometimes to make a voice call and I don't want to spend my deepest moments alone with a screen just hitting sand you know I like to see your face react when I tell you something real when I tell you something real cause baby I'm for real Right, wow, Joseph fantastic. I love guys. the fact that, that you a love song with Twitter, like the grand, <laughs> great American songwriter tradition, and you're talking about Twitter. Um, hey. Very much. I wish you the best of luck. That's, Thank I think, a so lot much. of people will resonate yeah, with that. Um, very quickly, uh, yeah. where can people see you live? Where can they find out more? Well, I've got a show coming up, actually, uh, April 9th at The Lost Night, which is an awesome little spot in Echo Park. And uh, there's going to be a great lineup that night. I'll be going on somewhere around 9.30, 9.45, something like that. But come early, come at 8, and watch all the, all the acts. So that's my next show. You and, got a great website, oh, thanks, josephedemusic.com. Josephedemusic.com. And E-I-D. Yes, ma'am. Josephedemusic.com. Yep. And so I'll bet all, the, all your info is there. Yeah, and all the socials are josephedemusic, so... Great. Please connect with me. I'd love to. Thanks so much ya. for stopping by, Joseph Eid. Um, and come back. Thank you guys for having me. Love I to love hear the more station, music. And I love I your can't show. Wait Thank you. Time. That's fantastic. Oh, you yeah. know, if you put two of LA's fiercest drag queens in a small room with microphones, the results are fabulous. Especially when it's our Miss Barbecue interviewing Pandora Box. I'm Miss Barbecue with Miss Pandora Box from RuPaul's Drag Race Season 2. Anybody that's eaten my cherry pie raves about it. How's the crust? <laughs> Crispy and a little tender in the middle. And the fruit? Always ripe. Is it juicy, Pandora? It's overflowing with juices. Would you say your cherry pie was succulent? I would say it's succulent and a bit moist. <laughs> you getting hungry, Kim? I'm getting hungry. <laughs> Welcome, Pandora. Hi. Hey there. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. You've done so much in different realms. Music, theater, television, of course, from RuPaul's Drag Race. But you've been on a roll where you're taking your drag. I saw you got started in New York. In Rochester, New York. In Rochester, New York at a club called Infinity. I had done drag, I think like a couple months before, at a drag party where everyone was getting in drag, or a couple of people were getting in drag, and other drag queens were putting them in drag. So I went there, but I was very coy, like, well, maybe, I don't know if I want to do it or not, but I really did. Everybody's gotten in drag for the first time, and sometimes it sticks, sometimes it doesn't. What with you made it going, I want to do this? It certainly wasn't the way that I looked, because I was fugly. Um, Were you a booger girl? Only because I was dating the drag queen and put me in drag. I was dating her ex-boyfriend, and they weren't really exes, and I didn't really know that. And he came to the party with me, and I was like, oops. 
So she made me look real, real, real ugly. <laughs> so I think really what made me want to do it is because I really did want to do it. Like I really wanted to get up on stage. I really wanted to perform. I had done theater like all my life. So that was the drive behind it because it certainly wasn't how I looked the first time. Now, did you always see Dragon Theater coming together naturally or did you always keep them separate? Well, I didn't even know that drag was really a thing that you could do. Like, a, I'm going to say career, but at the beginning, it's like, here's a dollar. Thank you for coming out. Right. So, yeah, no, I guess I did always want to combine them because it is a form of theater, basically. Where do you get your ideas for your theater projects? I wrote a lot when I was a kid, and a lot of times I was too shy to speak, so I wrote it out and wrote things. And when I was in the fifth grade, we had to write letters to our teacher, and we could write whatever we wanted to. And I wrote in the letter, I'm like, what if a student wanted to write a play and put it on for the school? Could that happen? And she said, yes, we could do that. So I wrote a play called The Trouble with Christmas, and we performed it at our school. How old were you then? Whatever you are in fifth grade. Ten? Ten? Ten, ten, yeah. ten years old? Yeah. Wow. Were you in your own world? Did you have a bunch of friends? Were you that loner? Or... I think I felt like I was a loner, especially as I got older. We moved in second grade, like halfway through, and the new school was a little tougher. I was getting picked on, and before I never really experienced that, so... I think I felt like I was a loner, but I did have friends, so I wasn't really a loner. It was just, it was a lot of inner turmoil going on in my mind. A lot of but, angsty stuff going well, on. Well, yeah, and just because I think I didn't get myself. I didn't understand that you could be gay. That wasn't on my radar. And I think I was also, like, asexual at a certain point in time. So it's like, I didn't think about it. And we didn't know any gay people. And all I knew is that people were picking on me for this. And it wasn't really on TV a lot. So I watched, like, Carol Burnett and Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin. And I just wanted to be like them. And I didn't realize that I was going to dress up like a woman and kind of be like them. But I just really admired them. And they made me laugh and made me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> there are very few times where you're really, really serious in your work. Do you see humor as a way of putting your message across? At this point, even if I try to do it that it's remotely serious, people just think I'm being funny. So <laughs> <clears throat> I can't really, I, I can't escape it. Even if I do like a just a normal lip sync number and go out there and it's supposed to be serious, eventually within like a minute, it's going to be funny because they're just waiting for it. So I'm like, all right, sometimes you just have to give people what they want. And I think that definitely comedy was a defense mechanism when I was younger I guess I'm just naturally funny. Are you funny at home? Like with your family, with your boyfriend? or <clears throat> My boyfriend would probably say no, because sometimes <laughs> I'm cranky. Because I don't know if you know, but this business can be tough sometimes. No. So, this it, yeah, this business, business is tough. This business called show can be tough. So sometimes at home, especially if I've been traveling, I'm tired and grouchy. And so unfortunately, he gets the brunt of it because we live together. Yeah, I'm sure he probably would rather have the show me sometimes, too. What's the best and what's the worst part of drag? I think the best part is just being able to entertain people. And you kind of are the master of your own destiny. Like, you can kind of pick what you want to do. Like, if you're doing a number, you're in total control of it. 
at the bar. You can do whatever you want, really. And I think the worst part, oh, there's so many. (laughs) (laughs) This is Barbecue with Pandora Box. Since RuPaul's Drag Race has come out and drag has gone into the mainstream, I have seen more of a, I won't say competitive, but a judgment feel from the typical person on the street who watches the show. How do you handle that queen that comes over and goes, the shoes would have been better if they were glitter, girl, or you should have had glitter on your eyebrows, or everyone thinks they're an expert now. Yeah. Well, I would be shocked if somebody actually came in person and said anything that they say online to me or any of the queens, because that's the thing. They don't usually say it in person, and they would never say it in person, but they will go beep, 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 and type it and send it. I don't know what typewriter makes that noise, but, you know, beep, 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 beep. I thought that was a that... special typewriter you had. <laughs> yeah, just... He <laughs> makes that noise. I don't like, know. Okay. Uh, um, they've got that keyboard courage. And I think one of the negative sides of Drag Race is that in the show, we read each other a lot. And I think people think that they're reading, but they don't know how to read, which reading, for anyone that doesn't know, is the art form of, how would we phrase it? Uh, Caddy observations of another person. Caddy observations of another person. Yeah. That are generally true close-ish. But funny. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. It's got to have a little snark, a little humor to it. A little bite. Otherwise, it's it's not good. Exactly. And people online don't realize that where well, I hope some of them are just assholes that's yeah. really just what it is they sit there they don't have a life they're not doing anything or they're like a teenager that's why I try not to engage because I'm like oh my god I do not need to be an adult yelling at a teenager it's our social media culture that they feel like they can just be assholes drag race now has that fan base and some of them can get really really nasty and it's like you're going against what RuPaul says and yeah. everything. Like, RuPaul has literally said, stop doing this. Like, oh, she, she said has. it on the show. She said it at one of the finales. She made a long speech about it. So, Oh, wow. Here's a subject. Drag phobia. That's a term I've coined within the <laughs> LGBT community where the gays love who you are, but they would never date you. Or you're too much like a woman, so therefore they don't want to be around you kind of deal. Right. Have you experienced that before Drag Race, after Drag Race? Oh, yeah, all the time. We always used to say drag queens are like car accidents. Everyone wants to see one. No one wants to get involved with one. Mm. Yeah, because the gay culture, well, our society in general frowns on effeminate men. Mm -hmm. And there's this whole masculinity thing, and that's really what it all stems from because it's just... It's hard being a working woman. (laughs) And I think that, yeah, I mean, I definitely had an issue dating. A lot of times they do just think that you want to be a woman or you are a woman or you're too effeminate. For some drag queens, that's true. And so what? Do you miss when drag was underground? No, because I make more money. (laughs) 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 What is something that people will be surprised to learn about you. You seem very open in our conversations that we've had. Although people have told me that Pandora Box does come across guarded. We're drag queens and we are gay. So you have to be. And I actually grew up getting picked on every day. That's sometimes why my guard is up because it's still that residual kind of thing. And also 
being a gay man and living this gay life, you never know what's coming for you. That sounds exhausting. Too. It is exhausting. And actually, maybe this has been a cathartic journey, barbecue. And maybe <laughs> I'm realizing, saying it, that that probably is a big thing that I probably don't need to do as much as I did before. You live and you learn. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I don't know, I was never really about labels or anything. I feel like it pigeonholes us into certain things. But when I learned about gender fluidity, as soon as I heard that description, I'm like, oh my God, that's me. That's me, yeah. I was like, that's it. Like, that, where was this, like, years ago? Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was like, non-existent. So labels are good in that fact that it can help you. And it did. I read that and I was like, no, that's just what I am. It's kind of like a weight was lifted off me. Do that you... I didn't even know was still there. Because things that happen in your childhood can still affect you later in life. You're like, oh, shit. Really? I'm not over this yet? <laughs> Do you feel like you're still coming into your own? I do, although I feel like that should have happened already. I think it's this business, too, that kind of prevents you a little bit because you constantly have to keep going and evolving and changing, and it makes it a little harder. Yes, absolutely. Oh, my goodness. This has been such a wonderful experience talking to you. This is one of those moments that I've always wanted to dive into with another queen and really dig deep on why we do what we do. And um, I think you are so talented. Please go to PandoraBox.com. There's two X's in box. Thank you. Because X marks the spot. <laughs> this has been Pandora Box with Miss Barbecue. And we will end with a beautiful song by Miss Pandora Box called Different. I'm different. You're different. We're different. That was fantastic. I love Miss Barbecue. She has such heart. I do want to mention that the next season of RuPaul's Drag Race, season nine, will begin on Friday, this Friday, March 24th, on the Logo Channel. I so appreciate that. Miss Barbecue has taught me so much about drag and drag as a political thing, as an art form. No one is talking to people the way she's talking around just shedding new light on something that I think a lot of people really don't understand. And I I just love it. Well, that is it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's coordinating producer, Steve Pride, who's sitting right here with me, our director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, our board op, Liz Tapia, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. And a shout out to the person I'm sitting in for tonight, Mr. Winslow Jones, who is out hosting some fabulous award show. I think it's the Tonys. It's so wonderful. But it's spelled I-E. It's not the actual Tonys. <laughs> and he never tells us where to go find him do these fabulous things. Well, find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted every Tuesday afternoon. We'll close with a song from an artist from earlier in the show. Here is Joseph Ede performing One and Only. Good night. Good night. Taking turns, breaking hearts, and burning bridges, picking up.
tossing out like weeds And city lights will lead you right To all your heart's delights At every corner you will find Just what you need I found a new thrill But I found it won't fill that craving For the next best thing And I'm tired of spinning around this fire So would you be, would you be my one and only? Would you be, would you be my one and only? Yeah, yeah. Did you hear they're falling fast? But nothing here seems to last. They pick it up. Toss it out like trash And you can watch them Across the fields How they explode with majesty But the earth is scorched Like a heart with holes so deep The seed of truth takes time And trust and the difference Between love and lust And a longing For growing endlessly Would you be, would you be my one and only? Would you be, would you be my one and only? I found a new thrill, but I found it won't fill that craving for the next best thing and I'm tired of spinning around this fire so would you be would you be my one